Let's bow again. Father, again, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy towards us, your love uh, that was demonstrated in having sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that uh, he died and he rose from the dead and that the uh, it is finished. And Lord, yet we look back to what he's done on the cross and we look back to uh, when he came uh, to praise you all the more for what has been done for us. And so, Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts, that we would uh, you would grant us understanding and wisdom so that we would uh, respond to what you say through your word so that you'd be glorified. We thank you for this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why did you come here today? Uh, why did you come? Uh, did you come to... Uh, Church because you had to? Did you come because you wanted to? Why did you come here today? Did you come with an attitude of uh, joy? Why did you come? Or did you come to simply sing songs and to hear a message? Or did you come to worship Jesus Christ? You know, sometimes we can get caught up in the regularities of life, and that includes even the things we do uh, each week as we come together, and we can forget on a practical basis why we come together, why we come together. And today we're going to see uh, three different responses to the birth of Jesus. We're going to see one of uh, joyful worship, which is that which should spur us on to joyful worship. We're going to see one of fearful agitation and even murderous hate which should cause maybe some of you to examine your hearts to see where your hearts are at. But for those of us who are believers, we're going to be challenged to our response uh, to what we see in the Word of God. And for those of you who are not believers, you'll definitely be challenged also. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. And we're continuing our look at these passages that I consider it right to remind you of and to be reminded of concerning the birth of our great uh, God and Savior who took on human flesh, God who took on human flesh. little context. It's accepted universally that Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, wrote the book of Matthew. Uh, This book was written sometime after the ascension of Christ uh, in the early 30s A.D., but before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Matthew, or Levi, his formal name, was a tax collector. He was a sinner called to repentance by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 9 and Luke 5, we see the Lord Jesus calls him to follow him, and he does. And he does. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have the presentation of King Jesus, the presentation of the King of the Jews, the Christ. And within this, we have the teaching of the kingdom, by the king himself. And then within this, we also have the opposition of his own to him, and we even have the outright rejection leading to the crucifixion, the very venue that God would use to bring about salvation for us. And so then in chapter 1, we've seen already in verse 1 that this book is about Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, More specifically, that Jesus Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant, that he would be the one who would sit on the throne of David forever. But he is also uh, in, he is also fulfills the, the reality of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the seed or the son of Abraham. And we remember, if you remember in Genesis, uh, God told Abraham that in your seed all the nations would be blessed. The gospel was preached, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3. And that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then after that, in chapter 1, we have the genealogy from Joseph's side, which proved he has the legal right to the throne. Although Joseph is not his physical father, as we saw last week, uh, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is still legally in the position to be the king of kings and lord of lords, to have the rightful throne over the Jews. And last week we saw the account and, and the, of the birth of Jesus. 
And remember, we saw Joseph's dilemma that Mary was found to be with child, found to be a child, and he desired righteously to put her away without disgracing her. But the Lord intervened uh, through an angel in a dream, uh, telling him to marry Mary and to, to the great truth that because of uh, what he would do, that, that you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And then we saw that this pointed to the prophecy that was fulfilled in chapter one, verse twenty three. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, and uh, or excuse me, they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us, that prophecy fulfilled from the book of Isaiah. So Jesus is the Lord who saves, and he is the one who broke the sin barrier by going to the cross to bring us to God, and therefore God is with us forever because sin has been taken care of through Jesus Christ. And at this point, we turn to chapter 2 in the book where I believe, as I've mentioned, we're going to see differing responses to the birth of King Jesus. And it's interesting that every group that we'll see today knew about the fact that there should be a Messiah King coming and that that King would be the Messiah that we see revealed in the Word of God even earlier, such as in Isaiah. And so here, uh, let's take a look at our passage, Matthew chapter 12, and let's begin with verse 1. And I, I said 12, I mean Matthew chapter 2, and let's begin with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now our text begins with the statement, uh, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. Here, specifically, you'll remember that Jesus was born. It was after this. Our passage is about after he was born. And we had in chapter 1 the account of the birth of Jesus Christ, right? We have the account of the birth of Jesus. And so this is after this. You remember Jesus was born. The angel told Mary uh, and she, or Joseph, and she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And the Messiah King, God, had become flesh, human flesh. And this is the first mention we had in, in verse 1 of the place of his birth now. Take a look at verse 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's interesting. Bethlehem was called the city of David, Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And, it was, and the term Bethlehem, Bethlehem in, in Hebrew means house of bread, house of bread. And so appropriate, in God's sovereign hand, Jesus was born in this city called House of Bread. And certainly we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And when we partake of him by faith, we receive eternal life. He gives life when we believe in him. And he has the words of eternal life. He is the bread of life. And so now notice we have another marker concerning the timing of all this is happening. Now after the Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Jude, uh, in, of Judea in the days of King Herod, or Herod the king. So Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Now who was Herod? There were different Herods, but who was this Herod here? Who was this Herod? Now, we know from our passage, also Luke makes it clear that Herod is the king of Judea, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. But who is this guy? Who is this Herod guy? Well, first of all, Herod was known in history as Herod the Great. And he was not a Jew. He was an Edomian. He was of uh, descent of, of the Edomites. And Esau would have been his great, 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 great granddaddy. And so he was of the descent of Esau, basically. Now, Herod was not a very nice man. Herod was an actually a very evil man, as we will see. 
And when he was in his mid-twenties, he was named the governor of Galilee, a very high position. And apparently the Romans were hoping that he would pacify the Jews, and through a trail of much blood, he did do so. And later on, in, uh, the Roman Senate named him the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. So by the Roman Empire, he was considered to be the king of the Jews. And this is important for later on when the Magi come and they say, where is he born? King of the Jews, right? It's very important to understand that. So Herod was a powerful man. He was so powerful when he refurnished the temple, he refurbished it. He called it Herod's temple, and that's what it was called to the day it was torn down in 78 AD. And so then we have Herod. He was a brutal killer. He murdered many people to stay in power, including his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and his wife. He also ordered his sons by one wife to be put to death. He was a murderer. And certainly later on in chapter 2, uh, Scripture reveals that, that he slew, verse 16, all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its environs from two years old and under. What a, what a maniac, slewing, uh, slaying uh, two-year-old children throughout the region. This is an evil, evil man. He is just like, as we'll see, just like Satan. He's a liar and a murderer, and Satan was using him very effectively, at least he thought initially, to do his bidding. But as we'll see, uh, he was unsuccessful. So then we have uh, this uh, statement here back in our passage. Uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, this is a loaded statement. This is amazing. This is amazing. But think about it. You have this group of uh, people coming saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? But I thought Herod was king of the Jews. Well, he was by Rome, but not by God's uh, understanding. Where has he been born? So we have King Herod, this despotic murderer, the king of the Jews, willing to do anything to stay in power. And then we have some magi from the east arriving saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, we have a problem. We've got a problem. And they say, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They've come. They were looking for the king of the Jews. They came to worship him. That's why they came. That's why they came, to worship him. Never forget that when you think of the three kings, or we'll see there's probably more than that. Uh, they came to worship him. That's the reason they came. They saw his star, and they came to worship him. Now, contrary to the, the blessed Christmas carol we just sang, we three kings, we, we see nowhere does it say how many there were there, and it also doesn't say the star led them to Jerusalem. They saw his star, and they came there. Later on, the star will lead them to the house where the child is. But they saw his star, and they came to where he was. They saw his star. So what do we know about these magi? What do we know about them? Now, there's a lot of people that have written a lot of stuff about this, and I don't think it's important because God doesn't give us the information, and what's important is what God shares for us. Well, the Magi, they were certainly, as we see here from the text, from the east, from the east. They were evidently not Jews. They were Gentiles, and they were from the east. Now, some teachers go so far as saying they're the kingmakers. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. That's just purely made up out of historical conclusions. The reality is they were not coming to make someone the king. They saw the king's star and they were coming to worship him. It's quite a difference. Some people saying they were the ones that officially said he's the king. No, they're not officially saying it. They are coming to worship him. That's why they're coming. Now, these magi um, most possibly existed during the time of Daniel when Israel had been exiled into Babylon. Indeed, about 600 years earlier before this, Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel as ruler over all the whole province of Babylon. And that was because the Lord had enabled Daniel to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then within this, chapter 2, verse 48 of Daniel, reveals that he became the chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
And in Daniel 5.11, we see that Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of the musicians, or excuse me, magicians, not musicians, magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. And in the Old Testament Greek translation of this, we have this phrase here. It is the same phrase, magos, magos. So this term magicians here speaks of these magi. Now, were these magi astrologers, like some would say? Possibly, but uh, yet most more likely from what we see scripturally, these were uh, the wise men of their day. They were most likely the highly educated, those like in the day of Daniel. Those like in the day of Daniel. And it's quite possible that the biblical truth that Daniel had most obviously shared with these people had been passed down from Magi to Magi. Remember, Daniel was the Daniel, the believer. We see is 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 is, uh, is in the book of Daniel. We see inspired by the Spirit. He was over the Magi for many, many, many years, and Daniel was a true believer and a godly man and a godly man. So we don't know much about them, but what we do know, pagan or not, was that they saw his star and they understood somehow the king of the Jews was to be born and had been born. They knew somehow that that was the case and they were coming not to anoint him as king, but to, to, to uh, worship him, to worship him, to worship him. So what can we observe concerning the Magi? Well, uh, from our passage Evidently, it appears they had some influence. They were able to receive a hearing before Herod. Herod the Great, he's a big guy there. You don't know you can't go before Herod unless something's big about what you're. you're you must have, they must have had a large group or whatever it might be. Uh, certainly, it's thought that they had a group of, uh, of people protecting them. You know, soldiers, whatever it might be. And also, we know that the whole area was upset and agitated. So everyone had seen it or understood it. It wasn't maybe just one or two guys that went in, or three guys. Uh, there was more to it than that. And so obviously their entrance into Jerusalem was something that the whole city had uh, heard about or had even maybe seen. So this has led people to believe a large caravan with troops and whatever it might be. But uh, certainly we know these foreign dignitaries were uh, special enough to be seen by Herod, as we'll see in a moment. And so they come to Jerusalem asking uh, the obvious question. They say, where is he who has been born, verse 2, king of the Jews? He's been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. So notice what they understand about the birth of Christ. They understand that he's been born. They understand that. And they understand he is the Christ. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. And they validate this statement with the phrase, for we saw his star in the east. We saw his star in the east. Now, again, many have put out all kinds of ideas about what his star was and all this stuff like that, you know, and maybe it was, you know, the Hades Comet or, you know, whatever it was. They, they, they have all kinds of ideas but the reality is it was a supernatural phenomenon in the text. And it was his start was specifically related to the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, who was born. And later on, we will see that this star actually moves and guides them to a house. That's no Jupiter or anything like that. That's not Halley's Comet. That is a supernatural uh, event that God uses. Look down in verse 9. And having heard the king, they went on their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east uh, went before them until it, until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they had seen in the east the star, and that prompted them to go to Jerusalem. And they went to Jerusalem. Okay, And then in Jerusalem, as we'll see later on, that same star appeared and led them specifically right to the house where Jesus was born. This is supernatural. This is supernatural. And so these Gentile magi were given revelation from God concerning Christ. Possibly they had it through Daniel, but what they did know is the king of the Jews had been born and they had seen his star. And notice they had so little revelation. That's they had so little revelation, and they came to worship him. 
worship him. They understood that the king of the Jews who had been born was worthy of worship. And folks, only God is worthy of worship. And God in human flesh had taken on human flesh. God is worthy of worship. He took on human flesh and they had come to worship the king of the Jews. Well, who did you come to worship today? Did you come to actually worship the Lord? To worship him, to, to bow your hearts before him, to, to declare his excellencies, to sing unto him. Did you come to worship him? We can forget why we come to church. Just, we think it says, hear a sermon, sing songs. No, that's not it. We come to worship the Lord. And in that, we do so through the word going forth, through giving, through singing, all those other things that we do to worship the Lord. These people went a long, long way to worship him. They, they put in a lot of effort, a lot of effort. Sometimes it's hard to get people to come to church or a Bible study. It's too much. To, to, they got other things to do. Other things are more important. And it's so convenient for us. It's so easy. They came from thousands of miles away to worship the Lord. So with that in mind, notice the response. Uh, the first response we're going to see is of King Herod, and then we're going to see the unexpected response of the Jews. We can understand what Herod's response is going to be. We already guessed that, but let's take a look. Verse 3, And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So the news gets back to Herod the king. He hears the wise men are listening, the news of it, and, and who has been, where is he who has been born? The king just, we've come to worship him. So Herod's a little, having a little trouble here. The term trouble means shaken up. He's stirred up. It speaks of being thrown into an unsettled state of confusion in a sense. Unsettled state, into confusion, mental, spiritual agitation, uh, disturbed, troubled, upset, agitated. He's shaken up. He's shaken up. And we probably understand that feeling. When something catches us off guard... And we hear it and we're all of a sudden troubled and shaken up. I mean, if you remember back and, you know, when the Twin Towers fell, you heard the news or you saw it. It was like, whoa, right away. It shook us up. It shook us up. Herod is shook up. He hears the news. The news gets to him. It's very troubling. It's disturbing to him. Now, obviously, within the wicked character of Herod, we understand why he responds the way he responds. Because he has made it his life's career to gain power uh, through uh, brutal means and to hold on to it through brutal means. He is the, quote, king of the Jews by Rome's standard, and he hears from these dignitaries, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And so he's concerned, he's agitated, he's troubled. So I understand his response uh, from looking at his sinful uh, actions and the way he has the, 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 what we see about him. But what about the response of the Jews? This is the part that just doesn't make sense at first. Look at verse 3. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Wait a second, that doesn't make sense. All Jerusalem with him? The Jews were waiting for their Messiah, the king of the Jews. They were waiting for him to be born. Shouldn't they be rejoicing or at least asking the question, whoa, is it true the king of the Jews has been born? I can't believe it. Maybe he's born. Where is he? Where is he who's been born? But Herod was troubled and Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, why is it that Jerusalem was troubled? Surely they knew, as we'll see later on, that he was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. These uh, people are saying he's been born. Herod's going to try to figure that out. He's crafty enough to figure out to go look for him, right? And so certainly these people understood that he'd be born in Bethlehem, uh, Micah. And so we have here, uh, five miles away, six miles away, they're troubled. They could just go look for him if they wanted to. But we've got something even more troubling here. That these Jews who are waiting for their Messiah evidently are disturbed by the news that he might actually be there. That doesn't make sense. But if you think about unbelief, it does make sense. You see, I believe the Jews at this time, as we will see, were in severe unbelief. They were religious. They were saying all the right things. They were waiting for the Messiah, but they were in unbelief, and that affected their view of the Messiah that they would have and want. Indeed, uh, we see their attitude of rejection 
Um, John 1, 9, it, it speaks it very clearly. Uh, there was a true light that came into the world and lightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his did not receive him. Later on, this generation will not receive him. John chapter 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Well, they were in unbelief before, and they were continuing in their unbelief, even with the Messiah in their midst. What about John chapter 10? Let's turn to John 10. John 10. You don't start off believing and then go into unbelief. They were already in unbelief. And that unbelief was, was affirmed and, and, and confirmed uh, through their actions when Christ was in their midst, by the way. John chapter 10, verse 24. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, this is a, it's a crazy question, by the way, because he's been declaring it all throughout. He sees this answer and said, I told you, and you do not believe. You do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. They're in unbelief. They're in unbelief. Later on, the Lord Jesus would weep over the unbelief of Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together in a way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Israel, although they appeared very religious, uh, were in unbelief. Now, it, when Christ came, it exposed their unbelief, by the way. It exposed it. And so I believe the, time, the Jews of time of Herod were in unbelief, by and large, as we see. And so in their unbelief, they were agitated by the thought that the king of the Jews had been born. Well, why would that be? Why would that be? Well, certainly in their unbelief, the baby didn't fit into their plans for the Messiah. We see later on, they wanted a Messiah who would deliver them from Rome. They had it all figured out what they wanted in the Messiah. And certainly, these plans, uh, it didn't fit in their plans because this, this who was born king of the Jews, they could read it and figure it out. Oh, Herod's going to have a problem with that. We've got trouble now. We've got trouble. Rather than who cares about Herod and praise the Lord, he's been born, what we've been waiting for, they're concerned about all the implications of Herod and all this stuff. And they get agitated. That's possibly what it is. From the faithless eye, uh, he would rock the boat. He would rock the boat. One uh, pastor writes, Unbelieving Jews are just like other unbelievers. They refuse to seek God or worship him. Being Jewish, no one more inclines one to recognize God's salvation than being raised in a Christian home. Proximity to the truth is not enough. It's shocking to find out when our Lord publicly presented himself to the nation some 30 years later, accompanied by signs and wonders, they failed as a nation to accept him as their king. And it was in Jerusalem that he was crucified. We have an unbelieving generation. And in the unbelief of these Jews, we see them manifesting their unbelief. They were very troubled, very troubled. Let me ask you this. Is this service troubling you? Does it agitate you? Does the word of God being proclaimed trouble you? Well, if that's the case, you need a savior. You need a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is most likely an evidence that you are in your sins that you are still in unbelief. Now, false religions are not going to agitate you. The bad guys are going to feed your flesh. They're going to uh, tickle your ears. They're going to do everything that makes you feel good. It's the truth concerning Christ, rightly brought forth by the Spirit of God, that causes those who are in unbelief to be agitated or troubled, or maybe be saved.
The Jews did not seek to worship Christ because they didn't believe. These Magi sought to worship the child, to worship the child who had been born king of the Jews. So you might be thinking, okay, well, no, no big deal. Uh, you know, it's, it's Herod in them. I'm not like this at all. It's not me. I wouldn't be that way. Well, let's take a better look at Herod here for a second. Come back to our passage in chapter 2, verse 4. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of, uh, of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the, for the, for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Okay, so we have here, he gathers together these, these religious guys, uh, the, the Israel's theocrats, the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And the chief priests, uh, they were, uh, basically that wasn't really a title, that was used to speak of a group of people. It could be the high priest, any ex-high priest, possibly captain of the temple guard or captain of the temple, some other priest. It also included the, the, the Sanhedrin, the 70. And these were the top religious dudes. These were the, the head guys, the head guys. Uh, they were not your ordinary uh, priests in any way, shape, or form. Uh, they were the theocrats. They were religious rulers, religious rulers. And then there were the scribes of the people. These were not priests. Uh, they were of other tribes. However, they were learned in the law, and they were those who, who studied the scriptures. They were the theologians. So you had the rulers and the theologians. And so they are asked by Herod, brought there, to inquire where he's been born. And what's their answer? They say right off the bat. Verse 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. Hey, that's the answer. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, by no means the least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. No hesitation. They knew the question right away, and they quote Micah 5 to Bethlehem. That's where it is. Now, what's interesting is the people understood this too. They understood this too. Later on, we see in John chapter 7. Look in John chapter 7, verse 40. They understood it also. By the way, knowing simply the word of God doesn't make you uh, a believer. It's knowing the God of the word that uh, that is how you become saved, knowing Christ. John chapter 7, verse 40. Some of the multitude were a multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying... This certainly is a prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. So others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They understood it. Now, they misinterpreted that and thought he would have come there when he was older. They didn't recognize it was where he was born. That's where he comes. But they understood that. They had the truth. They knew where he was to be born. And I would think those who truly knew the Lord, who were looking for the consolation of Israel, who were looking for the redemption of Israel, they would have run if they understood, if they believed. But as we see, the majority of Israel was in absolute unbelief. Unbelief. How many people were there after Jesus rose from the dead to wait? 120 people. Not many people out of millions, by the way. Out of millions. Now, later on in Acts, there would be some that get saved, but it was still a very small minority. So then, these should have been wanting and desiring to worship the Lord, and that's what we should be doing. And these magi, they went through uh, all this time and all this distance to worship. And yet, for some of us, it's such a hurdle to come to church. It's such a hurdle to do anything. We need to examine our hearts, where our hearts are at. And we need to confess any sin. So then, the leaders didn't seek to worship Christ because they didn't believe also. And they knew a lot about Christ. They were six miles away. They knew where he would be born. And yet, they didn't even sound like they're going, hey, we're going to go too, Herod. We'll head over there. They didn't even say that. We have no record of them running over there, at least initially, right? 
So then, Herod knows where the child will be born, he, he, and he believes like the demons do, by the way. He believes, but like the demons, okay? Um, and so notice what happens back in our passage, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time when the star appeared. Now that's when it appeared. Obviously, he's understanding that's when the child was born. It appeared at that time. And then they saw his star, and they traveled from the east and made it. And some time has passed since they got to Jerusalem and found where they thought he would be and began inquiring. And so here uh, they ascertained Herod in his sneakiness, trying to find out, having known it's the Bethlehem's the place, now secretly talks to the Magi and ascertains from them the timing. The timing the star appeared. You see, it must have appeared in the east no more than two years before, because uh, later on we see Herod the madman uh, obviously using this information, calling for the slaying of the children. Look in verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were born in Jerusalem and in its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. He understood that. He understood that. From, uh, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. So then here, Herod knows the place. He knows the approximate age of the child, uh, the Christ child that's been born. And so what happens here? Notice he deceptively uses uh, the Magi's desire to find the king uh, so that he can kill the king. Verse 8, And he said to them, Excuse me. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I may come and worship him. Sounds great in the surface. Go find the child. When you find him, come back. Let me know where he is and I'll worship him too. So Herod must be a believer. He wants to worship Christ, right? He says so. Is he a believer? He wants to worship. I guess if he says so, that means he's a believer. Well, that's not the case here. You see, that's not truly his desire. He has no desire to worship Christ. He has a desire to slay him. Indeed, later on, Joseph will be warned in a dream to take the child to Egypt because Herod's desire to slay him. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother, flee and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And that means kill. You'll see it later on. Uh, verse 20. Arise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He wanted to kill him. Is this not what we see in Revelation chapter 12? Revelation chapter 12. Turn there. Revelation 12. We see that the one behind Herod's hateful, uh, wicked desire to kill the Messiah is Satan himself, the devil. Revelation 12, verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That is his desire to take care of of the Christ by devouring him, to, to destroy him, to kill him. But it says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. To his throne. So then, you would say, I would never be like that. I would never be like Herod. I would never want to kill him. Well, Lord Jesus made it clear that uh, hatred is as good as killing, by the way. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 21, you've heard the ancients say, and you were told you should not commit murder. Whoever gets murder shall be liable for the court. But I tell you that everyone who is angry at his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, you should be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. Go to fiery hell. So here, the reality is, Herod had no restraint. He could do what he wanted with, with, with impunity. He, no one could, could restrain him. And I believe there's a lot of people that have a lot of hate that if they had no restraint, there'd be a lot of more murdering going on. And so you say, I wouldn't be like that. Well, 
Do you hate the fact that Christ desires to control your life? Do you hate the fact that he desires you to obey him? Do you hate that? So then, Herod attempts to kill Christ. So what do we see here? Notice a totally different response compared to the Jews and to Herod. Notice the response of the Gentile Magi. Look at verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the way east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi believed that Christ had been born, and they desired to worship him, and they didn't give up on their search. And though notice the star they saw in the east, it actually came back, and it is his star. Remember they said, we have seen his star. His star. And what's sad is they said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And they were met with apathy and, and deception. But they were not deterred. They continued. They went their way. We see in verse 9, after they heard the king, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, and it came and stood over where the child was. The Magi were not seeking to make him a king. They were seeking the king, to worship the king, to worship the king. So it appears again, and lo, it brought them, uh, went on before them until it stood over the place where the child was. So you have his star hanging out right over the house. It's a miraculous uh, uh, intervention of God to bring them to where the child was so that they could worship. And you know, God does that with us. He, he comes with his word and his spirit and he brings us into his kingdom so that we have changed desires, that which was impossible, our salvation. We get saved and then we have a new desire to worship the Lord, to worship the Lord. So then what's the response to this appearing again? Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. See the great joy. Why? It was his star. They saw it and they knew it would lead them to the child, and it did, and it did. So notice on a side note, it led them to the house, uh, and they saw the child with his mother Mary. Now Mary's no longer in a manger. At this point, she's in a house. She's in a house. Uh, Don't get all your theology from Christmas cards. The shepherds visited the manger, but the wise men visited a house, a house. So then, what happens when they get there? What do they do? They see Christ with his mother Mary and look at the response, end of verse 11, and they fell down and worshipped him. I believe this is where we fall so short and we become so hardened at times and so distracted at times that we don't in our heart of hearts fall down and worship the Lord for what he's done, especially when we're together, especially when we're together. together. They fell down and worshipped And worship, we see in Scripture, is only reserved for God. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall worship him and swear by his name. We see uh, in Revelation 22 where uh, John wrongly falls down to worship the angel who was telling him these things. angel said, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and the brother of the prophets. And those who heed the words of this book worship God. Worship God. And these magi are worshiping God in human flesh, the babe, the babe. Christ is the center of true worship. It's not music. It's not, I mean, everything in these churches these days is worship is all music. Yes, we sing unto him, but Christ is the center of worship. It is Christ. It is Christ. You remember those in the boat after Jesus calmed the sea, uh, they said, they said, certainly this is God's son. It says, and they worshiped him saying, certainly this is God's son. Christ is the center of worship. And then notice their worship continues as they give their treasures to him, present him gifts, middle of 11. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That means they had planned this all along. 
they were seeking to worship him and they were seeking to do so. And here they're doing so with these gifts also. Opening their treasures. Notice this, and don't miss this. Opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts. Gifts. They presented their treasuries to Christ. These things were treasures to them. You know, so often we give, and it's not treasure, it's the extras, whatever. It's not treasure. It's not what's important. We don't give them the first fruits. We need to give him what we treasure, first and foremost, ourselves, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that which is acceptable service of worship, but also with our finances. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Now I say to you, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. This is speaking about giving, by the way. Let each one do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's in the context, I believe, of worship. When you give, you're worshiping God. It is a fragrant aroma. It is If it's from the right heart, if it's from the right heart, it is an act of worship. And these magi are giving their treasures, their treasures. Now, many commentators have said, uh, this is what all these gifts mean, and this and this and this, and that's possible. They also said, hey, this is how Mary and Joseph funded their trip to Egypt with all this money or whatever. That's possible. But I don't think that's the point. When we look at these gifts, I think there's possibly some symbolism in these gifts. I think there is. Now, I can't be for sure. This is my view. But, for instance, I believe gold represents wealth and power. He's the king. He's the king. Secondly, frankincense was an incense in the temple for the worship of God. And I believe this points to his deity. Interestingly, in Isaiah 60, in Christ's millennial rule, the nations will bring him gold and frankincense. Isaiah 60. I'll read this. Let's turn to Isaiah 60, verse 6. When Christ is reigning on the throne, what do the nations bring? Gold and frankincense. Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you, two young camels of Midian and Ephrah, and those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Have you ever bared good news of the praises of the Lord? All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you, the rams of uh, Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. They're going to bring gold and frankincense. Well, what about myrrh? Myrrh. Well, myrrh was used for beauty treatments. It was then often mixed with vinegar as an anesthetic. It was also used to anoint the body and prepare it for burial. Indeed, in John 19.39, Scripture reveals that Nicodemus brought uh, about 100 pounds of myrrh along with aloe and used that to prepare the body of Jesus for his burial. So I think it quite possibly points to his sacrificial death. So we have King Jesus, Jesus Christ, who is God, who would suffer and die for our sins. He is the one who is worthy of all worship And that is exactly what these Gentiles do. They come to worship the Lord. They come to worship the Lord. And notice, as we finish, we see they're true believers. They obey. They're obedient. They're obedient. Look at verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. They obeyed. They obeyed the Lord. Folks, if you have faith, you're going to obey the Lord. No questions. They have a real relationship. They obeyed. They could have said, well, well, Lord, Herod, he wants to worship you. Well, no, they just obeyed. They did what God said. What God said. So worship is in the context of genuine faith and obedience and a true focus on the one who is worthy of all of our worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we come to worship when we come together to praise our Savior, to give him all the glory due his name, to declare his excellencies, to sing unto him. And we can get so sidetracked with so many things. We just need to confess and and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we've seen three responses to the birth of the king, the king who brings salvation. 
First of all, we saw, well, we saw first Herod, but first of all, we see the Jews' response uh, concerning their Messiah. They were troubled, they were agitated. Herod was too, and thus desired to murder the Lord. And lastly, we see the Magi, who went to great lengths to find and worship Christ. And when they found him, they joyously worshiped him with their treasures in the context of faith and obedience. Is that where your heart is? Is that what your heart is? And we need to be reminded. It's easy to get caught up in the, even all the season to get caught up in that rather than just worshiping Christ, praising him for who he is, honoring him for, for who he is, exalting his name in our hearts and together. And lastly, we see that the main way that God has us worship him all the time is to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices. That's our, his, his acceptable or our acceptable form of worship. So then, what is your worship like? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this example of these Gentile magi who went to great lengths to worship your son Jesus. And Lord, you were faithful to lead them to him. You were faithful to bring them to him. And Lord, they worshiped him joyfully and obeyed you and trusted you, Lord. And Lord, I pray we'd do the same thing. Lord, I pray for any believer here whose worship's gone cold or life has gotten in the way. Just confess, Lord, and focus hearts on you and worship you. Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, um, I pray that they would come to grips with their unbelief and that they would turn to Jesus, your son, for salvation. And Lord, may we not forget, may we not forget that Christ is the center of our worship. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. And John, if you could lead us in what child is this?